This morning we are going to jump into the book of Ezra. Uh, I'm so thankful that we are back on our uh, Bible study path here. The book of Ezra, um, I'm going to say this, and everybody in here is going to, you're going to, you're going to do the same thing you do. This is one of my favorites. It is. It's just one of my favorites. Um, I love this book for several reasons. Um, I've titled today, The Account of Two Revivals. Uh, you know, I was talking to Miss Deb about this just uh, this morning, and I said, you know, the book of Ezra, when I was doing this study to prepare for this this morning, um, I've read through this book before. But reading it now, in the, in the, go, after going through all of these Bible studies from Genesis to the Second Chronicles thus far, uh, reading the book of Ezra now has given me this new sense of fire, this new sense of excitement. And so uh, I'm very, very excited about the book of Ezra. It's beautiful. It deals with revival, uh, but differently than we would think about it today. Uh, and so I want to kind of help you see this book of Ezra from this, this far perspective. There's ten chapters in this book. We're going to look all the way through it. In, these, uh, in this book, there's two, there's two revivals that are mentioned, two narratives. Uh, the first happens around 538 B.C., the second happens around 458 B.C. So there's about 80 years that it spans uh, from, the first, uh, from the first chapter to the seventh chapter, about 80 years. And then chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 deal a little bit uh, with another time period. Uh, but it's kind of the second wave of revival. So there's a, there's a pretty big span of time across this book. And this is uh, the man Ezra is, is uh, named after him. And he is the... Uh, the, the man that we're going to talk about, he's the second part of this. So in, in this understanding, I'm going to give you a little background. Um, Judah, we know the nation of Judah, right? That's the line of David. That's the, king, that's the southern kingdom. Uh, there was the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah's kingdom was the one that every king that sat on Judah's throne was of the royal line of David, right? Israel had pagan kings, Judah had some pagan kings, but it also had some good kings. Uh, and those good kings, uh, all, every king in that, in that line was of the line of David. Uh, again, the Chronicles, as we talked about last time we were here, just to give you a little refresher, the Chronicles followed a lot of the same timeline as the kings. Uh, the kings, though, was all about, it was written in the time of the kings. The Chronicles was written looking back. So whenever you, you write a story in the middle of it, you're writing about the chaos. When you look back at a story, you write about what God really did. It's like, oh, I didn't realize God was doing all that back then. All I saw was storms around me. I didn't see the, the, one, the truth sleeping in the boat. You know what I mean? Like That's kind of the, the way that the, the kings and the chronicles read. And so Ezra was, is, was marked as the scribe who wrote the chronicles. He's the one who chronicled it down. Uh, and so he is a he's, a he's a godly man. I love Ezra. He helps us so much. Um, but we're to the point now where in this book of Ezra we see Judah has been in captivity in Babylon. Okay, the Babylonians have come and invaded uh, and taken Judah, the nation of God, the people of God, into captivity. Now there's a few things I want to share with you just so that you kind of know. This is some background information. It's a little bit helpful. I like how the scripture, the deeper you study into it, the, almost like the richer it gets, like just the better it seems to, see, to, to look and feel all the way around it. So the captivity of Judah uh, took place in three different stages. 
Okay, so there was the first stage uh, where in 605 B.C., uh, Nebuchadnezzar first took away Daniel. You remember Daniel, right? Uh, Daniel, we haven't gotten to that book yet, but this has already happened. Okay, so Ezra is the first time we start to see um, timelines will get a little bit confusing for us. Uh, Ezra is after the time of Daniel, uh, but we know Daniel was the one, you remember, in the lion's den, right? You know, and then, then you know uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys. Like that, that already happened, okay, because that was in the captivity time. But the first wave of captivity uh, was when Nebuchadnezzar first took away some leaders. Uh, then a few, then about five, about eight years later, there was another uh, invasion from Babylon. They took away Jehoiakim, Ezekiel, and some of Mordecai's ancestors. Now we know that the story of Esther happens in between uh, these this this book of Ezra. Um, and so that's kind of an important thing for us to note. Uh, then we know just about 10 years later, there's another final invasion that destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, the temple was burned. Uh, Zedekiah was the king of Judah at the time, and he broke an oath to Nebuchadnezzar. When he did that, he tried to have an alliance with Egypt. And as we say, all heck broke loose, right? That was, a, that was the final destruction and so the final moment of captivity. So the captivity of Judah, we, we sometimes we think it was just this war. They came in, took them all, and they left. But it was, it was stages. It was a little bit here, a little bit more, and then the final straw. And sometimes I think that's a pattern in our life, right? We, get one, we take one loss, and then our battle, our, our, our strength drops and then we get attacked again, and we're a little bit weaker and a little bit weaker. It doesn't necessarily all happen at once, right? It's a slow process. This takes over the course of about 15 years or so, uh, in uh, uh, 15 or 20 years, uh, for the, the captivity to truly take place. And then it's interesting, the captivity takes place in three stages, but the return of the remnant that, that actually go out takes place in three stages, okay? So the first stage is by um, the, the, the guy that led them back is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was uh, the prince. He was of the line of David. Okay, that's, inter that's it's very important to note. Uh, Zerubbabel was in the line of David. In fact, if you look in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, in the lineage of Jesus, guess who you'll find? Zerubbabel, because he was of the line of David, the royal line. So he was of that line. He was the first to lead back to the promised land. Now, just so we're aware, this was not a short journey from Babylon to the promise, back to the promised land of Canaan. Uh, in fact, it was the journey was probably 700 miles to travel all across the land. And so 700 miles, and you're not in an airplane, you're not in a car, you're not in a bunch of SUVs, you're not, you don't have the minivans, you are on foot. In fact, they say it's probably five months or more of daily travel to go 700 miles with this group of people. Now, another thing to, to note, whenever Zerubbabel left, here's, here's something that was um, a little bit convicting when I was reading through the book of Ezra. Uh, when I saw this, Zerubbabel, he, he was the first to go back. So, I can almost picture Zerubbabel being this guy, and we'll have to use a little bit of my imagination here. I can almost imagine this guy saying that 
he, he goes to um, uh, Daniel. You know, Daniel was, was in, in captivity with them. He was uh, the, the man of God, like Daniel was the guy, right? He was the guy. And so I can imagine Zerubbabel knows Daniel. Daniel's probably advanced in age. Probably Daniel, because I thought, why wouldn't Daniel go back, right? He was a super godly guy. Why wouldn't he go back to the promised land? Well, he was probably towards the end of his life and thought, I, I'm going to encourage these people to go back. But I, I'm not going to be able to make the trip. 700 miles, I'm going to do my part where, where I'm at, and God will use me here. I can picture Zerubbabel going to Daniel and saying, Hey, I heard that the captivity, it's been prophesied that the captivity would, be, would end. Is that true? And then Daniel, being the man of God, saying, Absolutely, it's true. God said it, it's going to happen. And then Zerubbabel saying, I'm getting some chills because I'm thinking. Then Zerubbabel saying... I'm of the line of David. Do you think I could, you think I, you think I'm, do you, do you really, do you think I could possibly go? Do you think I could be the one that, and Daniel's saying, you know what? Let me go talk to the king and let me go figure out if the time is now. Like maybe the time is now. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like here at New Providence, I feel like in, in this ministry, I feel like the time is now. Like, and I don't even know what for, really, because we're not in captivity here. But I just feel like there's moments where you've got this leader, this guy that's excited, and he's like, I'm of this line. I, I could be, God could use me through this. And when, when Zerubbabel takes this first group back, here's something that was a little bit disappointing. Only 33 family groups went with him. That was it. Of the nation of Israel, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people, and only about 50,000 total ended up going with Zerubbabel. And I don't know if it was because of the journey was not easy. I do think that Babylon was comfortable, is what I think. I think Babylon, they had money, business was good, uh, uh, the, the lifestyle was good, so why go be pioneers to a broken down temple that's been burned down? Why do all that? Well, Zerubbabel ended up with about 55,000 people, 33 family groups, and some, there were some priests, some Levites that were there as well that went with him. And uh, we see all that in the book of Ezra. We're going to jump into it in just a second. But as Zerubbabel went, that was at first, um, the first return. Well, as I said, there was three stages uh, to the captivity. There's three stages to the return. The second stage of return was the man named Ezra. Ezra is the one that we see here. He was the priest. Ezra was a priest, and um, he, so he's, he's in captivity. He leads the second group, and unfortunately, it was even a smaller number of people that went with him. But Ezra leads the second group, and then we see, uh, I don't want to get into it too much, in the, the third stage of return was a man named Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah, right? That's the next, we'll talk about that next week. But as we look at these three stages, it was almost as if we see uh, it, it cancel out the captivity, right? God saying, yes, you were put captive these three different seasons, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to free you in three different seasons. And, and another thing, if you look back, so we look back to this, Ezra looks back to this. I want to look even further back. Do you realize in the Old Testament, there were two exoduses? Check this out. This is so cool. I, watched, I saw this line up the other day. There was two exoduses. The first was from Egypt to Canaan. The second was from Babylon to Canaan. 
And as I see the parallels between these two exoduses, there are some names that pop up that show up into the New Testament that point everything to Jesus. Like, I'm talking wild. Like, it is absolutely wild how all of it lines up. But we won't get there for a couple more weeks whenever we get into the New Testament stuff. So, as we look at this, uh, there's and in between these two exoduses, by the way, from Egypt to Canaan, uh, you know, and that Moses led that one. Remember that? I mean, that's been a few months ago. I know we talked about it. But Moses led that one out of Egypt uh, through, the, through the Red Sea, you know, uh, the, then the wilderness, desert, that, that exodus. And then there's a thousand years before the Babylon exodus. A thousand years. Like, that's a long, long time. I think we forget sometimes that America's not a thousand years old. <laughs> you know, you go back a thousand years, like this country didn't exist. That's a long, long time. So we see these two events, uh, and both of them, we realize, here's something really cool, both of them were, were spoken about, were the subject of prophecy. So the exodus from Egypt to Canaan was spoke about in the book of Genesis. The exodus from Babylon over to uh, uh, Canaan was spoke about in Jeremiah, which I know we haven't gotten to Jeremiah yet, but he was in that timeline. It all, it all will make sense whenever we get uh, into, this, into this book. Uh, this book of Ezra has a few major events that happen in the middle of it. Uh, one of those events, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah begin their ministry. Very important for us to note. Uh, another uh, important thing, we, so you'll see as we go through these next few books and uh, into the rest of the Old Testament, what you'll see is a lot of these stories will kind of overlap and line up. Um, there is a moment in Zechariah, uh, in, the, in the book of Zechariah, that um, there's a man that is named the high priest. His name is Joshua. And in the book of Zechariah, what we'll see, and that happens in the time of Ezra. Okay, so that's the reason I'm sharing this with you. Uh, we'll look specifically at that in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah when we get there. But uh, there's, a, there's a moment where this guy named Joshua is, is named high priest, and he's anointed. And he gets anointed... And then uh, Zechariah is an anointed, or, and he says that Zerubbabel is anointed. And what happens is Zerubbabel, okay, get this, Zerubbabel is of the line of David, so he's a prince, right? Um, Joshua is a priest, and he is anointed. And so in Zechariah, in his ministry, what we see for the first time, there's a, there's a crowning ceremony, which I want to jump into it, but that's not for a few more weeks. There's a crowning ceremony that points to the Messiah being the one who unites priest and prince, priest and king together. Like he is the great high priest that brings it all together. He's crowned and it points to Jesus. All of this, this book, Ezra, is like saturated with stuff about Jesus, saturated with it. And we don't see it yet because we haven't fully, as we've said before, the Old Testament is concealed and the New Testament is revealed, right? So if you open up the New Testament, you can see what the Old Testament was talking about. If you open up the Old Testament, you can see what the New Testament's going to be talking about. Like it's just the way it mixes up together. So it's a really great piece. We also see in this book, the temple gets finished whenever it gets rebuilt in about 516 BC. Uh, we also know there's about um, 58 years that happen after the temple gets built. 58 years later, Ezra shows up. So this is, it's not a, um, the, the first half of this book, the first six chapters isn't even about Ezra. It's about Zerubbabel and that first uh, revival that comes back. 
Uh, We also know the story of Esther takes place before Ezra comes on the scene. And so um, it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, whole scene. Again, from from chapter 1 of Ezra to chapter 7 is about 80 years. It's a long time. It's 80 years that happens in these first six chapters up to chapter 7. So as we jump in this morning, that's some background for you. Now we're going to jump in and we're going to look at uh, the the pieces of this book of Ezra. We're going to break it up into two parts because it's about two different revivals, I believe. Uh, And so we're going to look at these two sections of revival and we're going to see the differences. So we see the first wave that leaves is found in the book of of Ezra chapter number one. Uh, The first revival, uh, these first two chapters, is led by a prince, as we talked about. God uses a prince, Zerubbabel, in the line of David. And he, uh, he leads this first group, and when he does, there's a proclamation that happens from the governor of Persia. He sends this word. He says the Jews need to go back. They need to rebuild. This needs to happen because God ordained it. Okay, It's not because this guy was a nice guy. It's because God was in control the whole time. People think, oh, well, God's people were captured. God's in control. He's like, you think you captured my people? I punished my people because they disobeyed me. That's what, you didn't capture them. I gave them to you. That's what God is saying. And we see in the first chapter of Ezra, God says, now it's time to release them. Who's willing to go? Who's willing to say yes? So the first uh, uh, section, the first couple of, of chapters is what happens when we say yes. When the people hear the call, they rise up and they go. That's chapter number one. It talks about whenever people say yes to God. God says it's time to go. There are some that say yes and there are some that say no. That's just, that's reality. It is real. It's reality today. Some people say, absolutely, God is moving. He's telling us to do something. Yes, we're going. There are some that say, I like it here in Babylon. There is a lot of the world that say, I like it right here in Babylon. I'm comfortable. I've got more money than I've ever had. We've got more health than we've ever had. We've got more whatever than we've ever had. And the whole time God is saying, I need to pull my people out of the world this is, a, this is a theme so far that we've talked about. We've got to pull, he says, I've got to pull my people out of the world into the land I've promised them so that I can bless them. See, they were being, quote, blessed by the world in Babylon, but they didn't have the blessings of God in Babylon. So God says, I need to bring you out and take you back home. And when I put you there, I'm going to show you great blessings again. And so some people say yes. When we say yes, chapter 1 of the book of Ezra is what saying yes looks like. And then um, whenever you say yes to God's voice, guess what happens in chapter (laughs) 2? When you say yes to God's voice, he writes your name down in a book. Isn't that good? Chapter 2 is all the names of those who said yes to Jesus in that book. I love, I'm so thankful. Like, I am so, so thankful that God loves to write names down in a book. Like, it's just, I don't know, I know I keep saying that. As I look through the scripture, when faithfulness happens, it seems like God will write your name down in a book. Like, I, I just, I encourage you, listen, if you say yes to God, he is, he is going to be so, so, so good. Uh, whenever, after chapter two, we see that list of names. And then in chapter three, what happens is uh, when we worship, when we worship, the first seven, chap- seven verses in chapter three are specifically um, whenever God, I, I, I'll say this, 
So God calls these people to go into this place. They say yes. When they say yes, they get their name written down. When they get their name written down, worship follows. Because here's what happens. Whenever you, you follow in obedience, there's celebration. There's celebration. Now, there's some trouble coming. Okay, it's not, this is not easy. It's 700 miles on foot. Five months every single day getting up and moving every single day. Let me tell you, it was, it's, it's tough to move. It's tough to move. I can't imagine every day for five straight months. Like, I've only been here five months, y'all, and that feels like forever, doesn't it? It does. It feels like forever. Imagine walking every single one of these days. It's a long time. And, but whenever that happens, there's this worship that breaks out. So when they get where they're going, chapter three, the first seven verses of chapter three is all about whenever they rebuild the altar and they worship God. And it's a powerful, incredible scene. Uh, and, and, because, and we know that because they offered what they call a burnt offering. It says in verse number, what is that? Verse number two, to, to offer the burnt offerings on it as in the law of Moses, the man of God. You know, if you look at all the offerings in the, in the Mosaic law, there's five offerings in the Mosaic law. One, two, three, four, five. All five of them dealt with different situations or different things. The burnt offering was the one that specifically dealt with worship. That's what it was. It was the worshipful heart. It was, here, listen to this. This is really good. The, the burnt offering was meant to bring joy to the heart of God. That's what it was meant to do. That's what the burnt offering was meant for. Now, look what else happens. Whenever we see the next thing that goes on, uh, in, uh, it says, they also instituted the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. It says that in uh, uh, the next couple of verses. Uh, verse number four, they kept the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles as it's written in the Mosaic Law. So here's what happens. They show up and here's what worship, here's what worship did. Okay, so it just kind of comes out of them. They have this burnt offering that is supposed to bring joy to the heart of God. Of all the seven feasts, there's seven feasts or festivals in the Mosaic Law. Of, of, of the seventh, one of them is meant to bring joy to the heart of the person. And it was the Feast of Booths. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was there specifically to, to bring this joy up within the person that's, that's experiencing the feast. So here's what happens. So when worship happens, God's happy and the people are happy. That's, that's as simple as it is. These two, why, was it the, why were these two things the ones that happened whenever the people were obedient and followed after the Lord? Because God says, my heart's rejoicing. And when God's heart's rejoicing, guess what? Our hearts are rejoicing. That's what happens in the people in the place. Now, we're just the first of chapter three. This is good so far. I love this. Revival's amazing. And uh, so the offering brings joy to the heart of God. The Feast of Booths brought joy to the heart of men. And then we see the rest of chapter three, verses eight through the end of the chapter. Um, we see what happens whenever we start serving or we start working. Here's, here's the way in the book of Ezra, this revival gets laid out. There's people that hear God's voice to go. They go. God writes their name down. They worship. After their worship experience, after God's happy, after they're happy, they start to serve. They just start to work. Not because they're obligated to, but because they have joy in their hearts. I had somebody tell me the other day at church, they said, hey, I want to serve on one of your teams. I said, awesome, which team? They're like, ah, it doesn't matter. And I was like, 
already I'm not super, super excited about your attitude. <laughs> like, what, let's, what brings joy to your heart? And they were like, what do you mean what brings joy to my heart? I'm like, I want a person that serves, that's excited, that has joy. Maybe you need to go have the Feast of Booths. Like, that needs to go happen in your heart. Like, you need to enjoy what God is calling you to do. When you do, you work, and you work excited, in an excited way. Well, guess what? As soon as you get excited to work, as soon as God begins to move in us and we jump out and start doing stuff, guess what happens next? Oh, it's terrible. It's awful. In uh, uh, verse number, uh, oh, and by the way, in verse number 11, I, I love uh, in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. He's good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So when the foundation was laid, when they saw this, this pad out there, and this, this, they, they got so excited, they start shouting out loud. Now, there was an older crowd that was there with them. They were weeping. They were sad because they remember the temple back in the glory days. They remember all those things way back in the day. And so they were sad because of this. Now, I, I can't really rationalize in my mind, why are they all broken down? There's new work happening. Well, there's a reality with us. There's a reality with humanity. We, we remember something and we think, well, this isn't as good as it was. This isn't as good. You don't, you don't really understand how beautiful it really was. You've got a whole generation that's shouting. And then the next verse, verse number 13, says the shout was so loud, everybody, it was heard from afar. Does your worship go, grow so loud that the world is hearing it? And listen, once it does, if, if you start to worship the Lord, when you are working and you're worshiping at the same time, here's what goes on. Your worship gets louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. And when it does, the world hears it. Oh no, what happens when the world hears it? When the world hears it, chapter 4, opposition begins. When the world hears the work of God that's moving on, God is stirring revival in His people. Can you imagine? They've been in captivity forever. They've been, they've been locked up. They've been held captive. Now they've made a five-month daily journey, 700 miles. Now they've worshipped this great God. Now they've experienced this joy. They begin working. They see God doing something amazing. These people are going nuts about how excited they are. And the world says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. We don't like what's happening. Well, the first part of chapter 4 gives us a scene of the Samaritans coming in and they said, we want to share in this work. We want to do the work alongside you. Well, here's what Zerubbabel did a wise thing. He rejects their offer. They said, we want to pay, we want to help, we want to be a part of this. It would be like if we were building a new building at New Providence and we were, we were all working on it together and we're here building it, we're here framing it, we're here doing this, and then this group of atheists shows up. And they're like, hey, this looks exciting. We want to join in. Now, a lot of times we would think, more hands the better, <laughs> right? Let's bring it on. But Zerubbabel says, no, you, you have no place in this because you don't know the God we're serving. We, we shouldn't allow the things of this world to come in and, and infiltrate and affect the things of the church. Because see, here's the deal. God doesn't need, every, God doesn't need the world's money. God doesn't need the world's manpower. God doesn't need anything outside. He just, he's got enough in himself. He says, I can do the work with my people. 
I'm going to do the work with my people, and their worship is going to spread, and people are going to know who I am because they're going to hear of what happens within the hearts and souls of the people that I love. And so Zerubbabel says to the Samaritans, no, we're good. We don't need your help. Well, guess what? People get a little mad. People get a little frustrated. The rest of chapter 4 then starts some serious, straightforward opposition. This doesn't need to happen. And somebody writes a letter. You know, when people get really mad and they write a letter and they just they send it right to their, right to their representative, right? They're like, we need to stop this. We need to put a law in place to stop this. The saddest part to me is found down in verses, um, uh, down in the, after the letter is sent, uh, down to verse 23 and 24 of chapter 4. Uh, let me flip over here to it. Uh, see, verse 23 and 24. When, uh, then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and, uh, and Shemishai, the scribe, uh, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So here's what happens. There's this direct opposition, and that direct opposition stopped the work. And if, if, if the story ended there, I would think, man, God's people, once they got enough opposition, just couldn't complete the work. That's, that's a sad statement. Verse 24 is a sad place. It is so, so sad. And I know that most of you right now are looking into chapter 5, verse 1. I know, I know you are. I, like, I, I know you. I, I saw you. I saw all your heads go down and you looked, right? That's Because you're like, well, what happens next? What happens next? Well, next is what happens whenever a godly man or godly men arise. Now, verse number 5. <laughs> now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealti, and the son of Yeshua, the son of Jodiak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. You know what happens whenever there is a godly leader that stands up and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are we listening to this guy that wrote this letter whenever God said to do this? When God said to do this, why did we stop? Like, I'm so thankful for these two prophets that stood up and said, hold on, it's time to get back to work. It's not, we're not, we're not supposed to be sitting here. God said rebuild this place, so let's rebuild this place. And it doesn't even seem like there was a whole lot that happened next. They were just like, all right. So they started doing it. I love it. It's so fantastic. There was a letter, in fact, in chapter 5 that gets sent back to another, to, to the, the world again. And that letter said this. It said, listen, God told us to do it. We're doing it. I love it. You know what happens? You know what it was? It was, it was the people of God testifying. They were witnessing that's what they were, they were like, listen, we get it. We want to respect your authority, but understand ultimately God's in charge of us and God's the one we answer to. We don't answer to you. We answer to this great God. We see chapter six, how uh, it temple gets finished. It gets, de- it gets dedicated. It is win, 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 win in chapter number six. Then we see the Passover happens. It's this beautiful culmination of the first uh, return to uh, back to the promised land. So this was revival number one. 
And then we see 58 years pass from chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, to the beginning of chapter 7. Now, before I jump into chapter 7 and following, um, I want to talk about what 58 years looks like. There's around, you know, it's, it's a 60 years. Uh, you know, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, most of us can't even imagine how long, how long 62 years is, right? I mean, 62 years is forever, forever long. And um, the, uh, you know, like today, like 62 years ago today, I mean, can you, that, I don't even know if that timeline existed. You know what I mean? Like 62 years ago today, my mother's 62 today. I love you, mom. Um, and so if you, uh, in six, about 60 years ago, though, let, let's think about 60 years ago um, in, in the 1960s. In fact, 60 years ago this year, there was an assassination. Remember that? JFK assassinated. He was assassinated in 1963. That's, that's 60 years ago. I, I think about that. I wasn't alive, right? I don't know anything about it. I've heard stories. I read about it in a history book. Uh, I heard people tell me about it. I've heard, um, you know, grandparents talking about it. I've heard uh, older people talk about it. I think about the, the presidents that the United States had in the 60s. So they had Eisenhower, JFK, Lyndon B. Johnson, Nixon. I say those names, and if you were alive in that time, some of you have some memories with some of that, right? You think, well, well, I remember the first uh, televised presidential debate as 60 years ago. I don't even understand that there wasn't ever one. <laughs> you know, like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, of course there's always presidential debates. There's a thousand of them all the time. And it's like, no, there was this one, and it was on TV, and every eye watched it. You know, there was, uh, there was 3.4 billion people in the world back in the 60s. There's like triple that now. Like, there's a ton of people now. And you look back in those times, um, in the 60s, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Like, that happened in the 60s. This... It was a different world back then, right? There's so many different things that happen. Uh, the Cold War, Vietnam, there was uh, 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 all these different issues that were going on. Here's the deal. So that was 60 years ago. If you are, and maybe you were alive in that time. All of you obviously are too young to be in that time, uh, minus my mother. Uh, but other than, than her, everybody else is too young to remember those days. Can you, uh, how can you articulate what was going on 60 years ago to someone that has no idea of any of those things. Like, I, I, you can't tell me, you, you can tell me all the things that happened. I read them out of my history book. You can say, oh, I remember where I was when I was watching. I remember the little house I was in, the TV, the, the rabbit ears that were coming out of the TV. And, and then, you know, kids today are like, what are rabbit ears? Why are, you, why are you wearing rabbit ears when you're watching TV? It's like, no, we're not wearing them. The TV's wearing them, right? Like this is like, we had our phone with the, you know, the dial thing. Or we had the phone with the, you know, the party line that came in. And you, depending on the ring, depending on the, I don't even know what any of that is. Like I've heard about it. And how do you explain what happened back then? Also, you, had, you remember the church services you were a part of, right? You can probably go back to the church and the, the little shotgun style, right, with the stained glass windows and all the, 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 the brown. It seemed like brown was the color back then. Like, just, you know, everything in there, the wooden pews, the hard pews. You can, you can remember those things. You can remember this great preacher who preached hard. You know, you can remember the Haggai and the Zechariah that came and preached and revival broke out. You can remember the revival meetings back in the 60s when you would go and gather together all week long. You can remember those things. But do, do your grandkids, your grandkids don't remember them because they weren't there. They don't understand the passion in which you're speaking of it. We all think you're crazy, 
right? It's like, okay, so, okay, somebody was, somebody was assassinated. Okay, a couple people assassinated. Sounds like a rough decade. I don't, I don't really understand it all, don't really get it all, um, but because there's not really been a whole lot of that happening recently. So you try to explain something 60 years ago. I say all of that. The whole purpose of me explaining that is that's how much time has passed from the first revival of the children of God here to this second guy that shows up. 60 years. This is not the, the next, I mean, we literally, read, there's less than a quarter inch in my Bible from one phrase to the next. But what happens is 60 years have passed. It's, do you know how hard it is for a generation to pass on um, something spiritual and revival-like fire that fresh wind, that fresh fire in you that happened 60 years ago, how can you make sure that fresh, exciting, blazing fire gets passed on to your grandkids? Like, it's, it's nearly impossible. We can't do it. It's not, it's not us that's making it happen. It has to be of God. So what does God do? I'm glad you asked. God uses a priest. That's what he does. He calls this man named Ezra. Ezra, I love, love, love this guy, Ezra. Ezra is, um, he, we can trace him all the way back to, uh, to Aaron, the very first high priest of Israel. His lineage goes back to, so Ezra's coming from good stock, right? He's got a good pedigree about him. He's a good guy. In, in verse number 10 of chapter 7, I love verse number 10. I, this one makes me like pump my fist. Like verse 10 of the book of Ezra chapter 7 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and teach it his statues and rules in Israel. When it says he had set his heart in it, uh, that's the same phrase that we would get. He was obsessed with God's word. He could not get enough of it. He would set his heart to study it. He would be all in it. He would be all in him. He would memorize it. He would share it. And then he had set his heart to also teach it. It was this fire blazing within him. I'll tell you what the next generation needs. It needs a leader with a fire blazing up in him about the Word of God, this book that can change lives because it connects us to an author that is un thinkable and unbelievable and great in all of his ways. That's who this man Ezra was. God went out and found this man Ezra. He, uh, we, we see he understands. And this is where in chapter 7, I, I believe this is where we see kind of the crux of the book of Ezra. You know, I always say, why is this book in my Bible, right? Why did this book make it and other books not? You know, there was a lot of writings. Why is this one in here? I think Ezra is in here because it points us to the great high priest that would one day come. I think it's in here because it wants us to see the connection to Jesus. Ezra was a good high priest. Like he was a, he was a good guy. He loved God's word. It says he was, he was so overwhelmed with it. He was so obsessed with it. He devoted his life to the understanding of God's word. That's, what he, that's who he was. And so this second, this second um, uh, realm of, of revival happens because God found this man named Ezra. And we see there was another copy of a letter, and it was given to this king, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes sends Ezra. He says, okay, Ezra, time to go. It's, uh, it's the, next, the next group of people. So we see in uh, chapter 7, that group of people, they go, they leave. Well, guess what happens? As soon as the second revival goes, I'm almost seeing this as like 
each, each revival, right? The second group of revivalists, they, they take off. Well, as soon as that God says it's time to go, so there's obedience. And what happens in chapter 8? God writes name down in his book. That's what he does. Because God is, is a God of consistency. Whenever we obey, when we say yes to the Lord, he writes our name down in a book. And he continues and says, here's the genealogy of those who came in this second wave of revival. Uh, now, something interesting about this, these names in, in the, the second uh, group is that I found, as I was looking through it and doing some study and research, these are, these are professional people. You, uh, it's very rare that God uses like wealthy, affluent, um, uh, very uh, um, influential people. He typically uses, you know, dumb guys like me. That's who he usually uses, and, and you know, again, to show his glory. But because he brought in these like these professional, uh, uh, very influential people, it, it attracted these other people to follow. And so God, God will use whatever he wants to use in whatever season he wants to use it. That's what I've determined. It's not, I, I tried to figure it out. I was like, well, God, what, what about this trip made more important than this? What about this? What about this? And he, then here's what happened. When I realized it was, it was an affluent people, it was a people that, guess what? If you're, and typically the reason God doesn't use, uh, I think, I personally believe, affluent, well-off people is because pride sets in, right? And they think, I'm doing this because I have tons of money, right? But here's what happens. Look in Ezra 8, and at the end of Ezra 8, what you'll see is he wanted to be sure everybody was on the same page. So in verse 21 of Ezra 8, it says, He proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava, and that made uh, that that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. This is verse twenty-two. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God is for our good on all those who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Here's what Ezra does. He tells this king, I'm going to go. And the king says, let me send with you, I'll send ahead of you, a band of soldiers that are going to protect you. And Ezra says this, no, 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 God's got me. And he says, we're going to go in faith. He tells these affluent, wealthy, well-to-do people, we're not taking uh, armor with us. We're not ta- In fact, what we're going to do, we're going to all get on the same page. We're going to fast. We're going to humble ourselves because God's going to protect us on this journey. You talk about a, an act of faith, a moment of faith. Like Ezra's the man. I love him. He's, he's like, listen, we're all fasting and we're running ahead because we're going to catch up with where God is. Like we're going we're gonna to grab a hold of him and he's going to protect us. The enemies are going to come up against us but it's okay because God is bigger than our enemies. That's what he says. That's how he goes. So he tells, and then he does something in, in a very business-like way. He's around professional people. He does something professional at the end of chapter 8. He says, we're gonna, here's what we're going to do. We're going to weigh all the treasure, the money. We're going to weigh all the goods at the beginning of our journey, and then we're going to weigh it again at the end. Because what happens, sometimes wealthy people get corrupted, right? Sometimes people with a lot of stuff get, get, want more stuff. And so Ezra says this in front of everybody. We're going to weigh before and after. If you take anything, we're going to know it. So guess what? There's accountability now for everybody. 
Like, I thought, why are these measures in place with this group and not the other group? The other group was poor. <laughs> they didn't have anything. That's what happens. Like, this group has some, has some resources. And so Ezra's like, here's how we're going to make sure we're all in this together. We're not going to run off and try to gain for ourselves. We're going to follow after the Lord. So we're going to weigh the treasure at the beginning of the trip and at the end of the trip. And if it's a different weight, we got a problem. And so he, he holds this true accountability out for everybody, which, by the way, also removes temptation from people, right? People are tempted to take something unless they know everybody's got their eye on it. Then they're like, you know what? I'm not even getting around it. I'm gonna, I, don't, I don't have to be near the treasure because I know it's taken care of. He didn't just say, well, you look trustworthy. I'm going to trust you. Ezra says, we're going to be smart about this. We're going to put a system in place that's going to build on the foundation of how great our God is because he's the one in charge of this. It's not us, it's him. So he builds out this system. Then verse chapter number nine, uh, we're getting towards the very end of this. Um, chapter nine, what we see is, I, I just titled this little chapter, Watch Out, uh, because what we see happen is uh, he saw that Ezra, when he came in, he saw that the first wave of revival had been all but put out, like just at the very, very bottom, right? It's 60 years ago. Like it is, a revival lasting 60 years is a revival to note, right? That's, that's amazing, incredible. But what had happened was a generation had been dying off and, and they were now intermarrying with the world. See, what Ezra realized was whenever um, uh, the great spiritual truth, the great spiritual truth of, of all humanity is when, when God calls you, he separates you from the world. Don't get all connected to the world again. Like, don't be getting in and, and enjoy, don't, you, you're not supposed to be about the pleasures of sin anymore. You're supposed to be a different people. You're supposed to be a hagios, a holy, peculiar, strange, different from the world people. That's what you're supposed to be. So when Ezra shows up, he sees that the world has now uh, um, come together with the people of God and revival is only a memory. And so when he sees that in chapter 9, he loses it. Listen to what it says in verse number 3 of chapter 9. It says, As soon as I heard this, as soon as he heard that all these people of God were intermarrying and, and being a part of all those... And listen, you can go back in the Old Testament. Again, everywhere we've looked, I feel like in this Bible study so far, I'm hoping it gets more encouraging because it's been like all these people, uh, they, they just can't let go of the world. They just keep... keep joining in with these pagan gods and these pagan families and they just keep all their and, and then all their their strict rules kind of become uh, just beliefs uh, just kind of thoughts uh, their advice and it's, it's their convictions why change convictions to just mere uh, opinions and so what happens is Ezra sees this in verse number three as soon as I heard this I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and my beard and I sat appalled he sat appalled. He was, he was, he lost it. He came in and said, what are you people doing? Do you not know how great God is? Why are you doing this? So Ezra calls for the people to, to separate from the world. People, are all, people of God were all intertwined with the world. It was ugly. It was bad. The cost and the price, here's, here's what we've learned from chapter 9. The price of continuing revival was they had to dissolve all of those things that were of the world. So anything that you had added to your life that was from the world and not from God, you had to dissolve it out of your life, no matter how much it cost you, no matter the hurt, 
no matter the disappointment. I mean, some people had to, to leave their, their, these marriages. Like, families had to break up because of this. If you want, the, the cost of revival is not cheap. It is expensive. You've got to be holy. You've got to experience a holy touch from a holy God. And so no matter all the pain, the cost, the heartache, if you wanted the life-giving revival of God, you had to uh, um, break off from the world. And here's kind of what Ezra did. He walks into this situation and he says, you all were talking about the glory days and, and God didn't leave them, you did. It wasn't God's fault that, that this all broke down. It was your fault. You took your eyes off the Lord. So we're not going to take our eyes off the Lord. We're going to focus back on Him. So they have this, this crazy amount. And chapter 10 gives us the craziest thing. I read through this, and I read through it two or three times thinking there is no way on earth this really happened. There was a massive confession of sin, and then people, people confess so much at the end of chapter 10, they're... they're written their names down that they were guilty of this. Like you talk about accountability. It was like, here, I was guilty of intermarrying with the world. And their names are in there. I, you know, I've always said I wanted my name. If I was living in that biblical time, I would want my name in the Bible. Not in this list. You know what I'm saying? Like this is the, this is the cleansing revival list. This is the worship service that comes into place that says, I want you to hold me accountable. Here's the deal. I'm going to put my name up. I messed up. I made a terrible, terrible decision, but I'm changing forever now. And when you write your name up on a wall, when you write your name up in the, in the congregation and say, this was my sin, that's, that's some vulnerability that I don't know that I've seen in church. That's some vulnerability where we all just come out and lay out our, our mess, right? And we say, this, and, and why did they do this? Why did they, like, this doesn't make sense in any place in the world. I'll tell you why they did it, because they began to long for revival again. They began to long for that touch of God again. They began to long for God to awaken the people. I I can just imagine hearing hearing those that were a part of that first revival say, Oh, when, we, when the foundation of the temple was laid, the temple wasn't even built yet. When the foundation was laid, we celebrated forever. So loud, people started showing up saying, we want to be a part of this. It sounds exciting, but we knew they weren't of God, so we shut them down because God is too great and God is too amazing. He's too holy for just anybody to show up. You've got to come through the same Passover. They have Passover after that, right? And the Passover says, you've got to come under the blood before you can be a part of this covenant. You've got to come into relationship with this God. You can't be a part of God's works if you don't have a relationship with God. This old first religion, first uh, revival group come and they say, we, we want that feeling back. We want that experience back. We want to see those victories again. That's what we want. So what's it going to take? It's going to take us cleansing and getting clean and pure from the world again. And so they tell their grandkids, And their grandkids say, you were right. We want what you were talking about. Like, we want that. All that happens is we just share witness, right? I just, when I testify to things God's done, people want a part of it. That's the way it is. People are like, well, how did you do this? I'm like, I didn't do it. God did. How'd you pay for this? I didn't pay for it. God did. Yeah, but it came out of your bank account. Yeah, but God put the money there. I don't even know where it came from. I got this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. I'm not smart enough to figure it all out because it was all God. I couldn't do it. And people say, well, I want to live like that. That sounds like an interesting life. 
you should write a book. I want to read about this. I'm like, God wrote a book. Read about it. Like it's all in here. Why? I'm not gonna. I can't. I can't make this better than it is. This is amazing. Like Ezra goes through this, and we're gonna look more into the story of Ezra because it leads into Nehemiah uh, and the third return of the remnant in Nehemiah. In fact, there's a pretty big portion where Ezra gets up and he reads the scripture. And again, I've read in Nehemiah where Ezra stands up to read the Bible. And he reads the scripture, the holy scripture of God. And when he does, lives are just radically changed. And I began to think, man, that'd be crazy awesome to have been there to hear Ezra read the Bible. But here's what I learned. It's not because Ezra had some like, it's because Ezra loved the word of God so much, it just leaked out of him. And whenever you see, you know, I've heard a phrase, a great pastor gone, gone years and years and years, I mean, decades ago, uh, who said, the world is yet to see somebody that's fully devoted to the heart of God. Like, whenever God has you, it's not just that we have a hold of God, it's God has a hold of us. God had a hold of Ezra. And when he had a hold of Ezra, he just began to share the word in this way that's, that, that was compelling and, and persuasive because Ezra was all saturated with the word of God. He had this anointing flowing over him of the Holy Spirit of God that was sharing his word and over my heart. Listen, my heart is when I get up to speak or preach that I would preach the same in the same heart that Ezra did. Ezra didn't preach so people would change. Ezra preached so that God would be glorified. He said, look at this God. Why are we doing anything that doesn't represent him? This doesn't make sense. I don't know why in the world we've intermarried with the world. I don't know why in the world we've been chasing after the pleasures of Babylon. Babylon had us in captivity. That's what Ezra, he said, God's too good. That's the way Ezra preached. And when he did, it changed people's lives. Why? Because he connected them to the heart of God. That's what Ezra did. I love the two revivals, the, the, the account of the two revivals in the book of Ezra. I hope today you are encouraged that God is working, he's still doing things, he's still active, but the principle still remains. You cannot have all the world in you and experience revival. You can't. You just can't. It's, this, is a, this is a God who is a jealous God. He wants your whole heart. He wants all of it. But I hope you're also encouraged, as soon as you say yes to this God, he's going to write your name down and say, I love this one. Look at this obedience. Look at this humility. Look at this heart that I can use. I pray we would be used by our great God. Next week, we're looking into the book of Nehemiah and that third, third wave of revival, that third uh, return, and to see what that looks like. It's a, it's, a different, it's a different world. I'm excited to jump into it with you next week. Uh, but today, be encouraged. Revival happens when it's all God and none of you and none of the world. Revival happens when we openly confess and cleanse and, and get rid of what is, is holding us back. And when we obey God, man, he, oh, there's nothing better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Ezra. Thank you for the great scenes that we have seen. Lord, as, as we look through these, uh, these pages of your scripture, God, may we be so on fire from your word as Ezra was, obsessed with it, can't get enough of it. 
Because I also know, Lord, as I look through into the New Testament, the Word is truth, and truth sets us free, and Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He's the Word in the beginning. He is every. It all points to the person of Jesus Christ. If we want anything to last, it has to be through the eternal saving grace of that Passover lamb. Even in the book of Revelation, this gets brought up through these, these words in Ezra and through Zechariah, through Haggai, through their, through their words. The, the temple that's built here in Ezra is nothing like the temple in Revelation because the temple in heaven is the Lamb and His glory. <laughs> and God, I just cannot imagine the beauty of who you are. I pray you would just keep revealing yourself through your word. Just keep, keep it coming, Lord. Keep showing up. Bring that revival that is on our hearts, that is pricking my heart every day. Bring that revival that we could see your glory again. Lord, I don't want to just hear about the revivals of old. I want to experience a fresh wind and fire today. We give you praise for who you are. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much.